0: Robbie Knox here, landlord of the moon underwater, and I have a very exciting announcement to share with you. Have you ever found yourself listening along to the podcast thinking, hmm, I wish I could experience this with my own eyes in the real world? Well, you're in luck, because very soon the moon underwater will be returning to the other realm for a special live show. As it's such a special occasion, we thought we'd invite an equally special guest along. Joining us on the night to create their dream pub is the Edinburgh Comedy Award winning comedian Ahir Shah. It's taking place on Sunday the 7th of April at Moth Club in London. Tickets are on general sale now. Search Moon Under Pod on socials, head to our page and click the link in the bio to get your tickets. We look
1: forward to seeing you there. Say hello to a new era of mental health care.
2: Welcome back to part two of The Moon Underwater. I am John Robbins, the landlord of this fantastical pub. Robin Allender is the regular and our guest this week is the one and only Mr. Al Murray. And what a journey it's been so far through Guinness, present moments, through sunshine in Moscow in Victory Park to a couple of days spent with the darkness, perfect lagers with his daughter Willow, And then lockdown rewinds on a Zoom call as the May sun hit. Oh, my God. It's been very emotional. But at the minute, we sit uh, poised on the edge of learning a bit more about prog rock. Close to the edge, you might say. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So we'll head back to the lovely Robin to get the answers to this week's pub quiz. Thanks, John. So, yes, uh, this week's pub quiz was all about prog rock.
3: I read three sets of lyrics and you had to tell me whether they were King Crimson, yes, or Genesis... So the first one was a carved oak table tells a tale of times when kings and queens sipped wine from goblets gold and the brave would lead their ladies from out of the room to Arbor's cool. So, Al, what are you saying for that?
4: That's Timetable by Genesis. Off, uh, That's off um, Nursery Crime, isn't it? Foxtrot. Foxtrot. Yes. Sorry. Yes. Unlucky, oh. but
3: great, great album. I love that album. <laughs> uh, sorry, John. <laughs> I also went Genesis. Nice. Something of the Gabriels about it. If you think of it being him singing it, you can hear it. Yeah, it's really... I love that song. It's great. Question two was... And if God is dead, what am I—a fleck of dirt on the wing of a fly hurtling to earth through a hole in the sky? And if Warhol's a genius, what am I—a speck of lint on the penis of an alien buried in gelatin beneath the sands of
4: Venus? Al, that's King Crimson, and uh, is that not the world's my oyster, suit wax museum? Is that the track, or is it happy to be happy with what you're happy with? The track is the construction of light. That's it. Yes, yes, yes. But it's all, they're all—they're all part of that same. That that right. That, when there were the when Baloo was. And the four of them in the early 2000s. I went to see that. I went to see them at Shepherd's Bush. Nice.
3: I don't really know the latest stuff as well. I'm, I'm more into. I love, I love Red, obviously, as my favourite Crimson album. Uh, sorry, get carried away again.
2: John, what did you. <laughs> well, it turns out I'm an unexpected prog aficionado uh, genius because I've also gone King Crimson. <laughs> for the Crimson. Nice. That means you both got uh, Yes for the Purple Wolfhound. Yeah. I do like Red. I've got. Two King Crimson albums. I've got Lark's Tongues in Aspic and I've got Red, and I prefer Red, I think. Red's amazing. That's one of
3: Kurt Cobain's favourite albums, Red.
2: It does sound very modern. That's what I think about King Crimson. It sounds current. Mm. Yeah, well, the last iteration with
4: the three drummers and everything was, was absolutely amazing to see. Absolutely incredible thing.
2: So, threes all round. Threes all round. Three of a perfect pair, you might say. Yeah, absolutely. Al may have uh, brought more specialist knowledge to that than me. I just thought King Crimson might mention penises. Genesis might be more sort of your ladies of yon, mm. and that left yes. Um, but we return to <laughs> Al Murray's uh, pub of the mind, pub of the heart, pub of the soul, pub of the sunlight, and it's a habitat. It's worn, used, familiar, with bar stuff that want you to be happy... Al, what two spirits are you serving in this bloody place? <laughs>
4: well, I really like drinking whiskey, and I really like drinking posh whiskey, though I've found the older I get, the harder I find whiskey to drink. It, it, the older I get, the more it becomes like fire water. Yeah. You know, in a cartoon where it, it's... if frame Roger Rabbit, Rabbit isn't it, they? where they give, him, they give him some scotch or something, that, and, and it sort of... And he, like steam comes out of ears and all that the older i get the, the harder I, I really find it harder to drink and uh i was at a friend's wedding recently and uh, someone handed out bottles of johnny walker black one to each table so i staggered around clutching that bottle to myself until i went to bed you know it's blended so it's so smooth it's not like the fire water experience that you can get from whiskey and a friend oh, ages ago when i when, when i turned 50 a friend of mine gave me a 50 year old bottle of Scotch, And that was like alcoholic Werther's Originals. It was absolutely amazing. It was like the most amazing, smooth, perfect. And obviously you went on Google and like, God, this this is like, you know, it's 250 quid a dram, right? So you try and enjoy it and savour it. But it was absolutely incredible. So I like really old, super posh whiskey, but I can't drink it very often because it, sort of, it sort of beats me up. It roughs me up. And I used to like... Sort of tough single malts with lot, you know, lots of presents, But I'm finding I'm having to get sort of older and smoother. The older I get, 15 years ago, I was an absolute dog for it. You know, at a party, I'd switch to whiskey, and reach the point where I pass out, and it would all be great fun. But I can't do that anymore. It's like the ne- and the next day, the blues off it is really bad, and the um, you know, the the pit of self loathing <laughs> <that> opens up. <laughs>
2: that says, come, come,
4: join me in here and all that sort of thing. So like a really, like a like a kind of looking at a 30-year-old Macallan, something really, really old. But it would have to also, however, be at the bar at a reasonable price because I want people to enjoy it. So the whole pub's business model would be tilted to making sure that the 30-year-old Macallan was like
2: £2.50 a shot. Well, price is not really a consideration. Now, if you want to go for the 50-year-old that sounds like one of the great drinking experiences... Because it was one one of the
4: great drinking experiences, and a friend friend of mine, I'd forgotten that I, would and I was going on about this. Was because yeah, yeah, you drank it with me. And obviously, it was such a sort of selfish experience in the end. <laughs> I
3: was completely forgotten about Lovely, the other matters.
4: Completely yeah. forgotten who I'd done it with. You know, like,
2: the pleasure was mine, you know. So I was on my own drinking this whiskey. Exactly. <laughs> so was that a 50-year-old Macallan?
4: No, it wasn't. It was something else. It was I can't remember what it was. And it was, it was, you know, a friend of mine who could afford it. And it was a very, like, it was a bottle of something that they'd only bottled two and a half thousand dollars. Or whatever, three casks or something. It's absolutely, it's absolutely amazing uh, scotch, and and that thing of it being every single uh, mouthful being just like completely perfect. And it also meant you
2: didn't want to just like go ah <laughs> drink the whole thing in one one glorious swoop. What should we write down then? Because we could write down a whiskey from the year of your birth. Well, let's take that then. Let's do that. A nine something from nineteen sixty eight. 1968 whiskey. Scotch from 1968. And what would be your, your second bottle? Calvados. Uh, Norman
4: apple brandy, basically. Um, I absolutely love it. And that's one of those spirits. If you drink it at the right pace, at the right point in your sort of food-booze cycle, you can just carry on forever. Everyone's like in a in, in a great sort of apple-y state of... of <laughs> Apples and orchards and autumn and the conversation can simply flow forever. You don't end up again feeling like you're drinking fire water, you've been run over by an enormous apple, James and the giant apple. You just <laughs> you just sort of feel you you, you just you're up you're up you're up on those sort of stilts of stilts of leisure and and um Calvados is one of those you know, even cheap Calvados, if you if if you get find a good one, can do that. And you don't have to drink a lot of it, or you can drink a lot of it, and it's just—it's just something about it. Because I don't really like brandy, and I do not don't find that it's the apple in the Calvados that sort of me again means it's adjacent to cider, and that that that's sort of the autumn feeling. Although my first encounter with cider was was drinking in a park in Bedford because a friend of mine bought some in an off licence, um, and then went home and was sick. And I'd like to thank. Michael Cunningham for that life experience, but no Calvados. It's so- just something about it, and it can be a it can be a posh one, or it can be like a it can be like what you would get if you walked into a cafe in in you know in Swiss Normandy or High Normandy or whatever, and in Caen, in Aramanche, in uh, any of those places, and they would pour you a glass of that, and it would all great long greasy legs down the side of the glass would be absolutely fantastic.
3: A lot of your choices seem to be about this kind of perfect point in time. I like what was that phrase you said about being on the stilts of desire?
4: Stilts of leisure, up on your leisure stilts. Yeah. Kind of,
3: sometimes it's it's just the right time if you catch it. Yeah,
4: you can make that happen, but very often it, you know, it's a thing that it's a thing that happens. But the last time I drank Calvados like that it was an old old friend of mine came around for dinner with some new friends of mine. We all got on like an absolute total. You know, like the like the Great Fire of London. It was absolutely fantastic. Um and we drank the Calvados and the next morning we were all messaging each other about how great was that Calvados, what a fantastic evening. And you sort of think
2: that's what drink's for. Oh, oiling the wheels of friendship and cheer. Exactly. Exactly. Community. Mm-hmm. It's about community. Yep. Wonderful. I need to I need to take a step back from these choices again to mop my brow to <laughs> um to retreat from the great Applee state that you've created here in our minds and our hearts. And head over into the cool air of the Moon Underwater pub library, Robin. Oh, that's interesting.
3: Mm. Thanks, John. This week in the pub library, we welcome the historian Alexandra Harris with her book Romantic Moderns. This is a fascinating book about the modernist movement of the early 20th century, which shows how writers and artists were inspired by the past, even as they created a new language for the present. She's writing about the kind of time of the Second World War, and she says, Writers and painters were drawn to the crowded, detailed, old-fashioned and whimsical gathering souvenirs from an old country that might not survive the fighting. It's a great subject for a book, but what's this got to do with pubs? Well, there's a great chapter in there about the war artist. John Piper. In the 30s and 40s, Piper and the writer J.M. Richards worked on a series of architectural review articles that, as Harris says, determinedly paid attention to everything in sight. They focused attention on trifles, looking seriously at the unsensational things which constitute the everyday life of the species, including naturally pubs. So here's a little bit of Alexandra Harris writing about John Piper, writing about pubs. Piper and Richards made fresh, sympathetic judgments about the qualities of ordinary places and there was nothing clinical about the photographs taken by the mass observation photographer Humphrey Spender to accompany Fully Licensed, Piper's article on Victorian pubs in all their over-decorated glory. Piper takes the sceptical modern gaze for a tour around a curlicue. It begins in the coils of a wig of wrought iron, it meets one of the palms and loses itself in fronds. It descends the satisfying ogee of a cast-iron table leg and disappears twiddling into the distance. Look out for the wonderful patterns engraved and frosted on bar doors, windows and mirrors, advises Piper, and regret that here again we have invented nothing so appropriate to take their place. So there we go. Fascinating book. Really, really interesting. I couldn't actually find a copy of the actual John Piper article. But what I think is really interesting is about that, about that time, it really keys into the Moon Underwater essay, that at this time of crisis, people started looking back. People were nostalgic, and people were worried about losing things like these fantastic Victorian pubs as well. You know,
2: So there's that real kind of
3: moment in there.
2: You know, it's a concern we have now as well. Yeah, you know, pubs closing down in the pandemic, pubs suffering after the financial crash. We are sort of grasping at our heritage to make the present day more manageable when the present day is a scary place. Superb. It's called Romantic Moderns.
3: The full title is English Writers, Artists and the Imagination from Virginia Woolf to John Piper by Alexandra Harris.
4: I'll have to read that. that goes. That's going Because yeah, the thing that's stuff. going on in the war is people are also they're also trying to look forward as well so they're thinking when we win what kind of society are we going to have so that there's an element of you know with the beverage report and everything is that a thing of people thinking why why are we fighting what are we fighting for what are we trying to preserve and what do we what do we need to get rid of to be able to go forward into a better into a better society so that's really fascinating that that's that's part of the dynamic that people are looking at people are looking at pubs and saying these are these are things we want to keep we mustn't lose that's really really interesting
3: but also that people were kind of taking them taking it taking them for granted as well i think that's in coming up for air the george orwell novel as well isn't it this idea that he's losing sight of what he kind of knows of england and stuff
2: i wanted to ask you a quite a general war question al (laughs) um it always strikes me that we have a very different relationship with the first and second world war in our consciousness the First World War is seen as a sort of, you know, a, a pointless, tragic loss of life. And and our heroes of that war are the everyday people, the, the sort of the Tommies. With the Second World War, our heroes are the heroes of the war. And it seems that we're more comfortable with a kind of affection for the Second World War that we don't have for the First World War. And I wondered, as someone who's an incredibly well-read, well-researched expert on the Second World War, why do you think it is that we almost, especially during a lot of the language around COVID and the the sort of the, you know, blitz spirit and all that, do you think some people do... What's the right word? They they like the Second World War. Oh, yeah, definitely. But it was still a war where... Hundreds of thousands of ordinary people died in horrific ways
4: yeah um well it's it, you know this is one of the most i think it's incredibly fascinating and 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 the reason we look at the way we look at the second world war is a lot to do because of the first world war and because of the social outcome of the first world war it, 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 it's so interesting we we do we do see the first world war in that framing, and that framing very much comes from between the wars but later on so there were massive victory parties in november of 1918 that the the mood was very much we've won this war we have won it was worth winning europe is now uh safe again um we've we've dealt with uh german hegemony in the continent which is a tr- always a traditional british uh political and popular aim and all that right the cost was immense but worth it it's it very much how people saw things at the end of the first world war and then Basically, the tide ran against that, which also then became baked into acceptance for appeasement. So, a big part of how we view view the First World War then became a big motivation for not wanting to get involved in another one. You know, the British Empire lost a million soldiers dead. You know, it's 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 completely mind boggling. But the but the the thing about the Second World War is that the the enemy is unambiguously bad. You can try to project onto it. If you want, uh, it's it's yet another. It's a it's part of imperial legacy, 19th century imperial legacy. It's imperiums all duffing into each other. But the Nazis, the Nazis, offer you like uh, the the perfect, unarguable casus belli, the most perfect reason for a population to unite against something that's unequivocally evil, and that's why we have an affection for it. I think an Irish friend of mine, he says, you know. People go, oh, it's your foundation myth—the Second World War. But if you were going to have a foundation myth, destroying Nazism is a pretty good one. So why would why wouldn't you be attracted to that as your reason for feeling good about your society and the society that comes out of it? But then within the war, you have the different currents of how the war is being sold to people. To you know, there's a, there's a massive morale crisis in early 1942, and people can't get soldiers to fight. You just can't get the army to fight. They won't. People aren't prepared to sort of die for. North Africa they can't see the point and that's when you get the mobilization of things like the idea of the of the beverage report and the you know uh, freedom from want and poverty and all that sort of stuff freedom from hunger and that then that then coalesces into having a labor government in 1945 Churchill being kicked out the creation of the welfare state, the national health service and all that sort of stuff and then two parallel traditions. In, the, in our political culture. One is that it was a people's war, won by the people that then delivers the way worth of, of state. And the other, which is really over, and they really over, and that's the sort of Labour side. And then the other Tory version is, is we the British did this all by ourselves because we're fantastic. And of course, they overlap because the population is British so that you can see why people might, why those two might blur together. And that, I think, that is where this great affection for the Second World War comes from. Plus... The thing that happened is we were there was bombing in the First World War, but nothing like on the scale of the of the Second World War, which galvanised national opinion and you know and popular opinion and made people think right. Well, we've got to fight this one, so we have to win it. So it's got to be the right thing to do. Therefore, it is the right thing to do. Therefore, it's a thing that sits in our um, imaginative affection. Does that answer your question?
2: Superb <laughs> answer. <laughs> Superb answer. Yeah, brilliant.
4: That's a, I mean, it's
3: it's such an interesting thing to talk about as well and john's point your thing about this kind of people saying about the Blitz spirit now there's a really good article uh a journalist called don uh, dan hancock's wrote which is where he got fascinated with these facebook groups about do you yeah. remember proper bin men yeah, yeah you've yeah, seen yeah, those yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, things yeah, going yeah. around so it's this kind of bizarre nostalgia for sort of like kind of post-war 50s kind of thing and his kind of argument through this article is people are saying things were worse then therefore it was better this idea that because things were a bit harder
4: yes that there's character well, character in hardship and that sort of faintly masochistic idea yeah i mean the thing is the thing is is in the 50s people you know i mean it was just so interesting commemoration is such a fascinating thing in 1960 the macmillan government sat down and said do we want to do something to celebrate 20 years since the battle of britain they went nah of course not it's all over it was well well past all that Nah, I'm not interested, and so they didn't. They didn't. They didn't do a fly past. They didn't. They didn't do the sort of Battle of Brittany things that we would think now are kind of st- standard bolt-ons to state occasions or public occasions. You know, no Spitfires. They they weren't interested in in 1960. The British government weren't interested in doing that. They they, they, could, they basically couldn't have cared less. And and the sort of the, the 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 re the reframing of remembrance and of commemoration that's gone on. You know, the, the, the huge controversy about the D-Day commemorations in 1984, you know, the Thatcher, go- Thatcher government were really not keen because they didn't want to upset the German government at the time. They didn't want to upset Cole because they were trying to, like, keep the what was the EC at the time, like, on an even keel, and thought that if we do a big parade where we go on how brilliant it was beating the Germans, we're going to upset them. And, you know, there's always, there's been that in it too. And then, of course, popular remembrance does what it wants, doesn't really respond to political or forms its own opinion and then will do what do its own thing so even the history of the remembering is fascinating and the and also the 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 various political prisms which the historiography has gone through in which we've changed because the conception now of the second world war in uh, the way history historians talk about it's an imperial the british effort is entirely imperial it's an imperial conflict from a british perspective the reason britain isn't alone in 1940s because it's got this Vast empire, you know, with, with four hundred million people in it, um, and giant financial resources, and eighty percent of the world shipping, and well, lots of gold, and and all this sort of stuff. You've got to come away from the very well alone idea that people, you know, that those face gr- that those Facebook groups think is what happened. You know, uh, it, it's so interesting. The, the historiography is almost as interesting as the history.
2: Great stuff. Right. We now head to a very different war. The war of selecting CDs to put in a jukebox. Uh, Al, <laughs> what one album, and I know this is going to be very, very difficult for you as a, a, a huge, mu- not just a music buff, but a musician yourself, what one album would you like to hear when you walk into your dream pub?
4: Well, it's a double album, so I'm cheating. And we've talked about them earlier. It's Seconds Out by Genesis, which is the their live album from two records into when Phil Collins had taken over as a singer. So the music's still sort of proggy, um, properly proggy. And he was finding his feet as a singer and the playing the sound of the band. Also, I mean, if it, sheer jukebox value for money. You know, you put your 10p in, supper's ready is 24 minutes. You know, you're like, you're, <laughs> it's no three-minute punk no. Uh, <laughs> uh, anthem. Yeah. <You, laughs> How can you have a twenty-four-minute song called Supper's Ready? It's an amazing song Why? Because it's it's so well. well, it's basically it's nine songs cobbled yeah. together. Yeah. It's quite. It's got.
3: There's a bit in Supper's Ready that always reminds me of Queen. That Winston Churchill dressed in drag bit is very Queen.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Willow Farm. Yeah, it's very. Yes, it's that. That is. It is like that sort of music hally Queen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They go through lots of textures in it. Yeah, it's beautiful
3: mm. as well. Who, who drums on on Seconds Out?
4: Well, you have got Chester Thompson on most of it. And then uh, Bill Bruford plays Cinema Show, which is the, you know, which is a thing which starts off with a sort of pastoral... Actually, it's... it's the, They they did their version of The Wasteland. They ripped off The Wasteland. Home for, it's home for work. Our Juliet prepares an evening meal. She dabs her skin with pretty s- smells, appeasing to appeal. And then uh, it's about Romeo and Juliet, and it is it is The Wasteland. They, they basically rebooted the wasteland in sort of there's a sort of four and a half minute pastoral song and then there's this absolute wig out seven eight mad instrumental keyboard great long keyboard solo you know on a monophonic keyboard and all that
2: well chester thompson is one of the great Zappa drummers that's right yeah yeah and um bongo fury well basically phil collins saw the 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 um oh is this the is this the he nicked the yeah, fill yeah, off yeah, him
4: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. The... that da yeah. da 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 digga that film so he saw the and elsewhere shows phil collins and basically said i got to have that drummer and he i think chester Thompson was playing in the wiz musical at the time and basically phil collins turned up and said if you want the job you're in the band just gave him the job but Bruford is a very different cup of tea. Very sort of English and straight, and like a less of a groove thing. I mean, he's an amazing drummer, but like a but you, Collins wanted the slightly funkier thing. Which, after all, Zappa, for all his like, Zappa's bands have that profound groove mm. in the music, which I think is a thing that if you don't know anything about, if you read if you read Frank Zappa on paper, you, you you wouldn't realize how groovy it all is. There is a like a break at the end
3: of. It's in that. I think it's called "Don't You Ever Wash That Thing" on yeah. Roxy and Elsewhere. Well, that that break is so good. I can't, that must have been sampled, you know. Yeah. After all the well, instrumental the stuff, it goes into the solo drum beat, and it sounds so funky and cool. Yeah.
4: Well, it's the two of them. It's him, it's him and Ralph Humphrey, isn't it? Ah, and um, yes. who then who then went to teach at Bar- Berkeley and wasn't a, didn't play anymore. You know, mm. didn't record or, or tour anymore. But yeah, so it's it's, it's Chester on it's Chester on, on sort of. Uh, you know, uh, all except one tune, but that is like 10, twelve minute tune that Bill Proof is on. So you know, like time wise, it evens out. But there's that amazing stuff where they're both playing together and they're playing in sync and they're working around each other and and uh, and and the sort of just the, the the fact that they're doing something that complicated and it swings absolutely swings and is really really groovy. Is like it's just a, it's it's so cool and yet with all like all of Genesis music it was a phase they were going through and they're moving on to something else even as they were doing it because they never really settled which is I think quite in, quite an interesting thing about them even if some of the stuff is settled and you might not like they're, they're always they're always moving at least
2: well superb choice there seconds out by Genesis on the jukebox with uh, Frank Zappa's very own Chester Thompson mm-hmm. And now we head over to your wild card choice, Norman cider. Mm. Oh God, I've got to <laughs> keel over!
4: <laughs> I want Norman cider.
2: Yeah, me too.
4: <laughs> in, in those sort of, in those sort of, um, you know, pop top bottles. Yeah. Which, if you again, if you're sat in a, if you're sat in a in a Norman restaurant and the food's just coming and the champagne just keeps coming, there's no start or end to the to the feeling of the the fizz of the fun of the cider and all that. And I filmed a really long... I mean, it's 20 years ago now. I filmed a documentary in, in Normandy. I, again, a Second World War thing. And basically, every we, you'd, you'd filmed to the point where you'd think, right, I've probably got that covered. And then it would be, right, let's get to No Burg. Let's drink cider and eat cheese and and maybe some snails. I don't know. And someone brave would have the tripe. And you'd, you know, you'd just... On this 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 thing, the apple of the of the side of the, and it's not like it's not like your strongbow, it's not like your aspels. it's this it's a and you can't get it here, you can't you know no one imports it, so it's a thing you have you have to have to drink in situ, it's a and it's so of the place, it's like what what's that word is it syncretic it's like it belongs to the place it's from it's as if it's been con- you know that before uh, the, the, the sort of medieval idea about mice is that they were like dirt would tumble along along until a mouse was sort of formed <laughs> out of the dirt that's that's how how small animals were formed the cider's like that it's like a sort of it's like a secretion of the place like a you know like like it like it's been, like it's the sweat of the land or something it's extraordinary
2: I was quite a big cider drinker. I would say that French cider is the best cider I've ever had. Yeah. And weirdly, Sainsbury's used to do a Normandy cider. Did they? They did did two. And um, it was just Sainsbury's own brand, Normandy cider. There was one which was about sort of 4.5% and one which was 6.5%. Yeah, yeah. It was absolutely delicious. Yep. Tesco do um, an Italian cider, which is really really nice. It comes in almost like little prosecco bottle shapes. Breton cider's good as well. The what's the, is that called Kern? That one.
4: The problem is, it's incredibly Moorish. So you you you, you get it. you you don't you need eight bottles of it. You can't. There's no point sitting down with a bottle and going, "Oh, I'll I'll sort of sip my way through this in tumblers." You need. I mean, I you know, I, I I've got I've got that my sister gave me this wine society membership i don't know if you oh yeah stumbled, stumbled into them. their warehouse They're very needy, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. they said they send me lots and lots of emails and they send me lots of they write i've asked for paperless and they I still it's endless paper with like yeah they do. you know they do they do a norman cider and i think um but, but you know it's hard to get hold of because it's just that it's, it's not breton i don't want the breton one i want the norman one you know like People know about Breton cider. So I don't want the one I want the one I want the one that is from that pl- that's from those places, that the orchards and the, the bocage
2: and What they do really well is they balance acidity with sweetness in a way that British ciders tend not to. With British cider, either it's kind of like sort of mouth drying lemon juice or it's like just a sort of an alco pot. Soft drink, yeah. Which there's a time and a place for. Your,
4: your 15th birthday.
2: The time. <laughs> Al, this is just it's tick, ticking all my boxes here, mate. Really enjoying your pub. But we now must sojourn into the realm within a realm uh, for those who subscribe via Patreon to find out Al's dream pub companion. For the rest of you, Johnny, come flyby nightlies. We'll see you in a very short time.
0: Thousands of people listen to The Moon Underwater every week and we can help deliver your brand message to targeted audiences. So if you to be part of The Moon Underwater and connect with engaged audio listeners, get in touch. Just email sales at audioalways.com and find out more about how podcast advertising and sponsorship could work for you. That's sales at audioalways.com.
2: We return now, refreshed, after chatting to Al Murray about his dream pub companion. You can hear that by subscribing on Patreon. But another thing you have to do is go and check out the new Spitting Image musical. Al, tell us all about it.
4: Well, this is uh, Idiots Assemble, the new Spitting Image musical that we, uh, we've we been working on since March last year. And, and I wrote it with... or uh, well, I'm on the team with... I, I wrote it, it, makes it sound like it's my thing. Matt Ford and I uh, wrote co-wrote this with sean foley who um people may remember from the play what i wrote which was the Morecambe and wise thing for about 20 years ago and sean's an amazing director the last thing he did in the theater was upstart crow so the the david mitchell shakespeare play thing comedy which rob Rouse was in as well um and uh we have been given the spitting image toy box to play with but in the theatre. So we don't have to we don't we, we you know, post Warhorse, post Avenue Q, you don't have to conceal the puppeteers. Puppeteers are part of the show, puppeteers are part of the you know, like Pompidou Centre pipes on the outside. You can you can you can see how the thing works, and you can also marvel at how on earth twelve people make hundred characters come and go within under two hours. It's absolutely it is absolutely amazing. I was at the rehearsals this morning for some, some of the choreography, because there's musical numbers in it and big, big big, dance set pieces and stuff. So I was at that this morning. And it, and each time you see it, it's an extra thing to see, an extra bit of characterisation the puppets have put in, the boggling complexity of, you know, because they're always, the minute they go off, they're coming back on with someone else. So there's this sort of ceaseless churn. Absolutely amazing. But the really, the two great, great things about it are the physicality of the puppets, I don't think people quite understand, that they're bigger than people. The Boris puppet is kind of, one and a half times the size of a of a man, it's huge. So they have this real presence when they come on, real, true physical presence. And last week I did a gig at the Albert Hall, and what we did at the start is we we did a, I did got, I got forty to do this long sort of Hugh Edwards. Oh, we the Albert, Albert Hall was built in eighteen seventy nine, you know, all that. Like like he's filling for a royal event, and then we had the Harry and Meghan puppets come on in a box in a in a in a spot in the dark, and the impact of the puppets because they're the size of people and the, the caricatures, is, it's just, there's, a, there's this extraordinary energy in it that you don't get if it's an impressionist going, what would happen if Boris Johnson bumped into Donald Trump in a lift with, with um, you know, Elmo from Sesame Street? And then they embark, they embark on the set piece. And you haven't got that. The On comes Prince Harry and on comes Meghan. And they start, like, bickering with each other the way you imagine they might. And, and we're putting words into the mouth. So there's that, and there's also the fact that we aren't doing this on television, so we are not compliant
2: to anybody. One question I have is, like, when when it's a regular TV show, satirical show like Spitting Image, I can understand how the writing process works. You sort of read the papers on a Monday, Tuesday, you write the sketches, you check the papers again on a... How do you write a satirical, topical show a year over a year in advance?
4: Well, first of all, you throw... Th- Two and a half versions of it away in the in the interim. Um we we had a show, the original show was called The Liar King, and it was Boris as Prime Minister wanted to become World King. And then we were probably, apart from him, we were the last people left for the country that wanted him to stay on. Because <laughs> we'd written this great big and it was good, it was good, it was a good it was good. There were there were two of him. There was the, the conscience who he'd given the slip when he was four in a white suit who'd turn up and go, You can't do this, he go bugger off and all that. It's great fun. And it ended with the conscience being tricked to going to the gallows instead of Boris. It's really like high opera. You f- you,
3: so you focused on Liz Truss then? Was that what you've done? For- <laughs>
4: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I wrote, I wrote the, I did write a, a spec for the quasi puppet that, that I submitted on the Monday and on the Tuesday it was <laughs> gone. And we like, we like to think that's the power of the, even the prospect of them being satirised that did for them. But no, that what you do is you write a zeitgeisty show. So you, you write a thing that tries to capture now, and obviously we do alter, because on the press night in Birmingham, because we did five weeks preview in Birmingham, was the day Nicola Sturgeon resigned. So we had to get Jess Robinson off her holiday in the Lake District, down to a studio to record the lines, to alter the bit that we had with Sturgeon anyway. And there's points in the show, there's like, there's some newsreel on, on screen with Vox Pop, so we can update those. There's, a, there's the odd bit, like sort of press conferencing moments, so you can update that. But basically the story is... It's the week of the coronation, but well, the week before um, uh, um, the coronation, the king is checking the artifacts, you know, so the testicle of infinity, the sword of infinite wank fantasy and the whatever else, the um, fabric of society, which is a literal piece of fabric. And it's it's too it's too threadbare for him to be crowned. It needs, so the fabric of society needs to be replaced or, or, or repaired. And who will take on this impossible mission? Then Tom Cruise comes out of the ceiling on on ropes a tiny Tom Cruise comes out of the city on ropes in red lamps and that's the story and Tom Cruise assembles a posse of heroes um from stage and screen because that's the other thing about old spitting image it was it is it wasn't just politics it, it really really was not just politics it, there was a lot of sport in it there was a lot of showbiz sort of Brucey Tarby golfing all that sort of stuff from the old days so that it, it it they were very keen on it being you know in the in the sense of. Juvenile satire, you know, it's a stew. It's got everything in it in the pot. So it's not just about politicians. It's about us. It's about the, the people we watch on the telly. It's about, you know, uh, uh, society. Hopefully, but but you know, we've got seven good guys, so we've got to have seven baddies and James James Corden who are trying to thwart um, the goodies from repairing the fabric of society. And it's basically it's big musical set pieces suella braverman is one of the undead um uh uh and and so on i mean it but it to be honest with the puppeteers with the, the sort of we we wrote a script it's black and white on the page and then you hear the impressionists come in and do it and if the impressionist got the impression right you would think well those lines are perfect If they got the impression wrong you'd think oh we've missed the mark there so that would that, that would sort of color the page in or join the dots and then it's turned into like a into, into like a 3D thing now with, with its own life. And it's been an absolutely amazing writing experience in that respect. Like from, what if we do the royal family singing, we will rule you instead of we will rock you? What about that? And what if we have Bohemian Rhapsody but geared with the king saying he's upset about the way things are going?
2: Okay, finally, I'm on board. <laughs> you, you've, you've now sold it to me. <laughs> the Brian May puppet is a, is a, a thing of wonder. <laughs> oh, Folks, Idiots Assemble, Uh, Spitting Image of the Musical, is at the Phoenix Theatre from Wednesday the 24th of May to Saturday the 26th of August, 2023. 13 weeks only. So get your tickets. It sounds absolutely incredible. Can't wait to see it myself. But we've got business to attend to, Al. First off, what are you going to bar from your pub?
4: You're barred. I'm screens with football on. Yes,
2: tick, 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 tick. I'd have screens with cricket on. I'd have screens with bowls on. I'd have screens with tennis on, but not football. And I guess this is where you and the pub landlord uh, diverge your interests.
4: Yeah, yeah. Although although I've always... <laughs> because I'm not into football. I've never really done any stuff about football with him because I don't know about it. And, you know, people smell that an absolute mile off. You know, oh, uh, didn't Chelsea United do well this weekend against... against you know the the hot spur or whatever. They just know. So I've never done it, and I've always done it that the pub landlord has ha, has to be neutral in matters football. He has to stay above the pre- petty tribal rivalry of club football, as he puts it. Although obviously, you know, I really hate Man U or whatever. You know, like wherever I am, I'll bung that in. But but I I I, I don't do football, so the landlord doesn't because I just can't I can't fake it. And so I wouldn't want I, maybe rugby, but not football. Just because I've been in too many pubs where there's a game on and it all goes, it all goes sour. And it goes, you know, especially if the, you know, what's worse? It's not what, what is it um, Wellington said about it. There's nothing, the one thing worse than, there's only one thing as bad as losing a battle. It's winning one or whatever, you know, like, uh, 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 um, you know, winning a football match in a pub can be a really bad thing <laughs> for the vibe in the, in the pub. As bad as losing one, you know, so, so yeah, football on screens. I'm not against screens per se, but football and the It's a really interesting
3: thing about football fans. Obviously, this this isn't all football fans, but something particularly about <laughs> which says a lot about like online culture. Is for some reason on Instagram, I keep getting advertised like classic Premiership moments, like amazing goals and things. Like I, I I've pa- I've paused to watch them, which is probably why I keep getting loads and loads of them. But it's so funny to read the comments because you like. There's these like amazing Beckham free kicks, and in the comments, there's always someone going, "Yeah, this is this is actually quite shit." Yeah, <laughs> like, you know, and it's like, yeah, are you ever
2: happy? Is anyone ever happy about something? It's so weird. Hundred percent. That was one of the main reasons I lost interest in football. Is that it just seemed an industry built around negativity. And no one likes anything about their team. Yeah, right. Apart from the badge, it's the strangest thing. Well, I mean, I watched that. I watched that. Um,
4: Welcome to Wrexham thing. Mm. Um, and the the absolute facet. You know the, the 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 sort of. You can watch that in two ways. You can watch it as a sort of heartwarming story of um, you know a change coming to a, a place desperately in need of being you know having its uh, having its cockles warmed. Or it can be some blokes in a pub who want a manager fired within three, you know, within three games of him being brought in. He's got to go. And you think, you, what are you doing? Why are you behaving like this? What, what is making you do this? And I find, uh, you know, the 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 sort the, of the, the the the
2: it's like a windscreen wiper being a football fan. You know, you're four
4: against four against. You know, and,
2: and when it's raining really hard, it goes double speed. You know, it's like a sport designed to vent frustration, not vent joy. Yeah. I think. If Wrexham miss out on the Champions League in, in 10 years' time, there'll be people like calling for the club to be sold, the manager to go, the players to go, and you're like, they have just have forgotten. Anyway, great choice. <laughs> league, <Alan. laughs> Hurry
3: up, please. It's time.
4: <laughs> Magnificent. Before we name your pub, <laughs> let's just run
2: through some of the characteristics of it because I think we've at times captured what is uh, what is beautiful about pubs and also can be beautiful about alcohol. This is a uh, habitat, an inhabited place which is warm, used, furnished, and bar staff who want you to be happy. Uh, we're playing Guinness tennis and we're playing it with Guinness from Grogan's in Temple Bar, whilst also the sunlight hits. The Prival Pint um, served in Victory Park in Moscow. We've got bottles of Spetbegunda German Pinot Noir uh, enjoyed in uh, in Germany with our daughters as they shun the wine because uh, that's their job at that age. <laughs> and we've also got a friend bringing round Projecto Calcareous New Liter Bianco, a natural wine with the bits left in. We are letting the smooth, smooth flavours of a 1968 whiskey go down our neck and Calvados shared amongst friends that will be messaged about the next day. We're listening to Seconds Out by Genesis, uh, featuring Chester Thompson on drums. And our wild card is Norman Cider, which tastes so much of the place that maybe it's fitting you can't really get it over here. There'll be no football on the screens. And what a delight it has been to share in Al Murray's dream pub. Al, what are we going to call this place? We're going to call it
4: um, uh, Operation Supercharge. (laughs) (laughs) Like it. Uh, Which is the second phase of the uh, Second Battle of El Alamein, where Monty uh, put the crush on the Africa Corps and the German army in... uh, in North Africa in 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 1942, so Operation Supercharge. Because you walk past, that and go, "What the fucking hell's that?"
3: <laughs> <laughs> Might get a lot of people with low batteries on their iPhones coming in. That's the only thing I'm thinking. Well,
4: it's a well, but that's a risk we're prepared to. run. they won't worry about the about the batteries on their iPhones when they see the when they see the. Guinness from Grogan's on the bar, will they? They'll, they'll think oh.
2: I love the idea of someone walking past and looking in and seeing two guys having a sort of uh, complete out-of-body experience with a, with a pint of Guinness <laughs> and a pint of, yeah. of, of lager. <laughs> Tears streaming yeah. down their face in Operation Supercharge. <laughs> well, Al, Operation Supercharge is now yours to take with you, you wherever you need it the most. And we and everyone listening, thank you so much for your time. It's a total pleasure. Thank you. It's been great fun.
0: Thousands of people listen to The Moon Underwater every week and we can help deliver your brand message to targeted audiences. So if you to be part of The Moon Underwater and connect with engaged audio listeners, get in touch. Just email sales at audioalways.com and find out more about how podcast advertising and sponsorship could work for you. That's sales at audioalways.com.